How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of The Genius Life, I'm super excited to introduce you to my friend, Anya Fernald. Anya is a sustainable food expert and the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. She's also appeared as a judge on the Food Network's TV show, Iron Chef America, and The Next Iron Chef. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you no doubt have seen my stories um, where I share my food pictures from Belcampo, or you might have caught my recent experience up at Belcampo's Meat Camp. Belcampo is a chain of restaurants, a very small chain, um, in Los Angeles, in the Bay Area, and now they have a new location in New York City which double as butcher shops. You can get meat in any of their locations and all of their food, all of the meat comes from this gorgeous farm in Northern California at the base of the beautiful Mount Shasta Mountain, uh, or actually it's a volcano. And they are so passionate about growing humanely raised, sustainably produced meat. All of their meat comes from grass-fed animals who you know, live out these wonderful lives. I talk about this in Genius Foods, the fact that you really should um, vote with your wallet for animals that have only one bad day, essentially. And Belcampo, I mean, one of the, the what, what I think is so great about it, it is as it's a perfect model of this system at work. So I'm really excited for you to get to meet um, Anya. She is the ultimate boss woman. She is so brilliant. And um, over the course of the next hour, you're going to learn a lot of things like what life is like for a cow in the factory farm system and why these animals are often fed plastic. You heard me right. Plastic, you guys. You're going to discover the health benefits of going for 100% grass-fed meat versus grain-fed or even grass-fed grain-finished, which is very commonly available. Why the notion that eating meat is inherently bad for the environment is total BS. The surprising reason you've been misled about the dangers of eating raw meat and eggs. How to cook the ultimate burger from the pro herself and so much more. This is going to be one of the episodes of my show, you guys, that I am almost positive you're going to come back to and listen to more than once. So I'm pumped to get into it. But before we do, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode, and that is Four Sigmatic. I love my coffee, you guys. And sometimes when I'm on the road and I'm not sure about whether or not I'll have access to high quality organic coffee, I'll bring my little packets of Four Sigmatic Lion's Mane coffee with me. In fact, I did that when I traveled up to Mount Shasta for Belcampo's Meat Camp very recently. And I was at the airport and I went to. Uh, big coffee chain and I got a cup of hot water and I mixed my Four Sigmatic Lion's Mane coffee, which I know is, you know, giving me that coffee that is organic. Coffee is one of the most chemically sprayed crops on the planet. Plus I get the bonus of Lion's Mane, which is a quote unquote medicinal mushroom that might have cognition boosting effects. My personal experience is that I can drink um, a few packets of it and I don't get the jitters like I do sometimes when I'm just drinking straight coffee. And I also like knowing that there are a handful of studies that suggest that lion's mane might actually have a brain health boosting effect. In fact, there are a few studies now validating that mushrooms in general seem to be protective against dementia at the observational population level. So if you'd like to try anything that Four Sigmatic produces, I recommend going over to foursigmatic.com slash max or using promo code max to save 15% off of everything in their online store. Again, that is foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off everything in their online store. I recommend checking out the um, Lion's Mane Coffee, which again, I like to throw a few packets in my backpack when I'm hitting the road. Um, or even when I'm out of coffee in my house. I just love it. So check them out. Promo code MAX, 15% off. Yeehaw. All right, guys. Well, we're just seconds away from my chat with the amazing Anya Fernald, CEO and co-founder of Belcampo. Um, there's going to be... Oh, my God. This is such a fun chat. If you guys want to support the Genius Life, well, I would really appreciate that. Um, the best way to do that is to go to maxlugavere.com and simply join my newsletter. All you got to do is enter your first and last name and your email address, and we will be in touch. In fact, as a thank you gift, automatically, I'm going to send you guys a PDF of 11 supplements that you can use to potentially boost your brain function. I take my supplementation very seriously. It's one thing that I'm sure you guys know about me is I'm, I don't jump on any bandwagons. And so you're going to get the straight dope on the 
commonly available products that you can use to potentially give your brain a little bit of support. So again, that's maxalugavir.com. Join the newsletter. You'll get that supplement guide for free. And um, I look forward to staying in touch with you via email. All right, that's all for my introduction. Let's rock and roll with Anya Fernald. We're rolling. Anya, thank you so much for being here with me on The Genius Life. I'm stoked to be here. I'm so happy to have you. We met at Meet Camp, which uh, was great. And that's where you and I became friends. And getting to know you, you're just like a badass woman, you know, like boss, CEO, super brilliant. And so I just couldn't wait to like get you on here and expose you to my to my peeps. Well, anybody that can sit down with and starts out the meal with the burger when we have like four additional <laughs> meat dishes coming, I was like, Max, let's go. This is, <laughs> is going to be good. So you've got the right appetite for protein. Oh, man. <laughs> well, you guys bring you guys bring the good meat. So thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how did you like come to I don't know many other people who farm and raise animals, you know, animal husbandry. I don't know what it's called. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to kind of share with my listeners, like a little bit of the awe and wonder that I felt being on your farm and seeing what it is that you guys do, because it's really so amazing. Like there's all this talk about like meat, you know, is it sustainable? You know, how are the animals truly treated when they're being raised for the purpose of going into, you know, meat production and, I just, I've, I'd never seen anything like it. Like I just, you know, it was so, it was incredible. Yeah. What we're doing is pretty unusual because of, you know, the openness of having people like you there. I'm really committed to transparency. I feel very proud of everything we do on our ranch and a lot of the meat industry, <clears throat> it's vested in not having you know what's going on. Um, that's actually, you know, prevalent. If you really dig into the labeling, the packaging, the messaging on websites of meat companies, it's all about masking ownership masking supply chain and the way that you know they talk about it it has to do with the fact that you know animals live and die to make meat right so that's kind of a an uncomfortable truth that we as responsible carnivores have to deal with and but a lot's hidden under that and so Belcampo is committed to radical transparency and it all started for us from you know we've got a now a 27,000 acre ranch and we lease another 20,000 acres all farmed organically I've got about 3,000 beef, a couple thousand lambs and pigs. We produce around 70,000 chickens a year. And then a couple other species like uh, turkey, geese, and ducks on a smaller scale. So those are pretty big numbers, but it's actually tiny in the scope of how industrial ag operates. So we're a tiny player in the bigger ranching system. And we're a massive player in the regenerative agriculture space. So I'm like the biggest in the pool on the regenerative (coughs) carbon positive highly responsible style of ranching that we practice. And then if you look at the bigger industry, um, we're a really, really small player. And the most radical piece of what our company does is we built our own USDA certified slaughterhouse. So I got to build the first new slaughterhouse to be built in California, multi-species in over 50 years. So we opened that in 2012. So all the meat isn't just raised on our farm, it's also processed in our own plant. Mm -hmm. So that um, whole exercise, I mean, there was a a crazy project, but the idea for me was like, what if you could have meat that you could just feel awesome about every piece of it, you know, that you just didn't have any questions about? Because meat's always so complicated because, you know, an animal lives and dies. It's, It's a stressful, heavy decision. I think it's the heaviest ethical decision you make every day as a consumer right mm. to meet and um i i wanted to have like a, a a carefree positive decision just something you could be like these people figured it out but that also was convenient so i came at it in the food space from having i actually started one of the first meat csas in california back in 2005 i had just moved back here from italy mm. to california to the bay area where i grew up in oregon in california i'd lived in italy for seven years i'd become a intense carnivore in Italy. Um, I, I went to Europe just fresh out of being a vegetarian at the height of the 90s. I was passionate about food and read about the 12 pounds of grain it took for every pound of beef. And I was concerned about that. I was a vegetarian for almost a decade and vegan for a piece of that. And then I became more and more interested in cooking and food and ranching. And um, after college, I went to work as a cheesemaker in southern Europe and northern Africa for a year. And um, 
I went off with literally a folding bicycle mm-hmm. and I visited on the train and with my bicycle, got this fellowship, the Watson fellowship that lets you do something kind of crazy after you graduate from college. And it's a competitive thing. Once you get it, they kind of leave you alone. So I went abroad with that. I think they gave me like $18,000, which seemed like a ton of money at the time. It was so long ago I had traveler's checks. Wow. And I went around Europe and I went to Morocco and Tunisia. And I visited 60 or 70 different dairies. And I ate the food. You know, I was staying with people, typically visiting the dairies. I worked in a couple places for like longer stints. And this is before food and artisan food was sort of interesting. But it just been my passion. But during that year, I started to eat. 80-90% of my calories were fat and protein animal and I personally having come out of like this was the era of snack wells and totally fat free and and just it, the idea that you would just dive into all this fatty animal <laughs> protein I was like this is disgusting why are you going to make cheese like cheese is death you know it's so bad for you but I personally had a really big transformation in my health I got a hell of a lot happier. I mean, I was also outside and on my bicycle and on trains and cool places and meeting interesting people and, you know, seeing the world in a different way. But I also was eating a radically different, highly traditional diet. So you're talking about like probably like a pound of cheese, a bunch of salami, because these were, you know, small farms where they made cured meats as well. And after that year, I just, I didn't want to go back and work. The time I was like, I want to work in food. I want to work in farming. But like, what am I going to do? Like be a food journalist or write, write about, you know, fancy restaurant food. This was 1999 at the time, you know, a year after I graduated from college. And I'm thinking, what's the, what's the world look like? It's like selling fancy food in restaurants, not interested. And then farming, which is like this massive agribusiness reality, not interested. So I stayed in Europe and I got a job working for the European Union doing rural development with cheesemakers in Sicily. And then I became the program director for a microfinance group in northern Italy, working with small-scale food producers all over. I got to work in 30 different countries, like everything from Bosnian plum jam to <laughs> cured reindeer meat in Sweden, visit these producers. It was an incredible life. And then, you know, I was ready to move back. And the world had started to shift in California, too. You know, like it was starting to percolate. And when I came back, I dove into, you know, by that time living in northern Italy, I was pounding a plate of raw meat every day before dinner, pretty wow. much. Sausage, eat raw sausage there, raw pork and veal sausage. No way. It was like my favorite. It's amazing, you know, the town I lived in, if you can't, you know, if there's a child that's like making noise in the shop with their mom, they'll just give them a link of raw sausage. Okay. The same way you'll like throw a lollipop at a kid in the dentist's office. You know, like yeah. they're just like, they, like, here, have a piece of raw sausage. So different, wow. Right? So that I had a real taste for meat. My whole diet had changed, you know. I came back, like, I was like, you know, like an 1890s person. It was what I felt like, you know, in terms of my tastes, right? It's like <laughs> I have huge piece of cheese, big piece of bread, and then I eat a bunch of pickles and <laughs> some coffee and then, you know, wait eight hours before I eat again. Like, because I lived in a small town in Northern Italy and then before that in rural Sicily. And I came back and I started eating meat in the U.S. at the rhythm that I had and I didn't feel good. Wow. And so I bought my first whole cow in 2005 right when I moved back you bought a cow mm-hmm. where'd you put the cow <laughs> well that's I lived in an apartment at the time in Oakland <laughs> it was in your apartment yeah <laughs> I didn't realize I was like I I'm not particularly spatially adept in general like I'm not like you know that, that kind of thinking through space so 700 pounds like I knew how much a pound of meat was like in a bag but I didn't realize how much 700 pounds was so I basically baked like 100 meat loaves and just gave them to everybody I knew oh but I remember taping my freezer shut with electrical tape to keep all the meat in. <laughs> wow. It was pretty funny. But yeah, that was the, the, I actually bought more cows after that and distributed them through a CSA. But, it, you know, I got into it just, be, again, through, you know, personal health and wanting to have a cleaner product that I could feel really good about. Um, and it was clear to me, though, that that was not a scalable solution. Hmm. You know, and you don't want to live out of your freezer either. You want fresh right. meat that you can choose kind of what you're going to eat. And also, if you buy a whole cow, you eat a heck of a lot of ground meat, which isn't, always what you want to eat. So Belcampo is a result of that personal narrative to a good degree because that's really where my protein passion came from, you know, my own personal health and interest. And then, you know, a couple of years later when I had had started and sold a couple different small food businesses, I'd run an event that had gotten some media attention for me and it was kind of a moment to figure out what my next step would be. And I looked around and it was like everybody had kind of cracked the code on produce you know there's lots of great options for beautiful vegetables on par what you can get in the best cities of the world you know just amazing produce that's what we have in california but meat was still a struggle Hmm. you know like i still going to a whole foods i didn't find product that i felt good about 
And then in a farmer's market, I could find product, but the aesthetics and the sacrifice involved was unappealing often. You know, it's like hmm. a cold bag. It's bloody. I don't know how to, where to put it. You know, it's like kind of like a there was a transactional cost that was pretty high for me huh. in that and planning. So I felt like the opportunity was to kind of break that open. And hmm. that was really the space that nobody had figured out. It's also appealing because it's just such a massive industry and it's so consolidated so the kind of rebel in me that wanted that likes to stir stuff up and make things different and kind of like is inspired by the challenge was like wow there's like this kind of big lurking like evil enemy of the meat industry and we have this great demographic in california people who are passionate about quality and cleaning they don't have a choice so what if we were to give them that choice it's amazing it's amazing so do, like you and you you basically launched a little farm that could like this amazing uh, institution essentially in Northern Cali, and now you guys have restaurants in. You've got this beautiful place in L.A. You've got I don't know three in L.A. I mean in New York you've got three in L.A. You've got you know a few in in um, the Bay Area. It's uh, it's really I mean it's it feels revolutionary but it shouldn't you know I mean it's it's like so unfortunate the way most people eat you painted a bit of the of the picture how like most cows and animals are are produced in uh, in this country you know during meat camp like how what is it normally like for a cow in the in the industrial factory farm system it's um, so f- first off look at the actual lifespan of it so on grass um, animals mature and are ready for harvest which has to do with body fat effectively at about yeah. 27 28 months in the industrial system at 16 to 18 months so they're much they're younger usually. they go through a compressed puberty hmm. um, and so that I just bring it up to say like first off their life's a lot shorter hmm. um, the diet um, for conventional cows is a mix of corn um, and then there there will be hay often in a feedlot ration you know a small percentage of hay and then there's other elements used for fiber and calories. And that's actually legal and widely used um, to use plastic shavings in cow feed for fiber. Plastic shavings. Mm-hmm. If you oh. also Google Skittles, M&M's, cow feed, you'll get a bunch of articles. There was a scandal a couple of years ago uh, about just how candy waste is used broadly in cow feeds. These are not things that are regulated for BPAs or, you know, our food is broadly regulated for phthalates and all the stuff you, you know, speak so yeah. well about and educate your your world about but all that's put into the animals we eat on a day-to-day basis that's shocking and so you you have you know the the first six months of an animal's of cow's life is sort of universal in that they're born and they stay with their mom it's the most efficient way it's called a cow-calf operation Hmm. and we actually do that as well i mean the cows are born on our farm in our case they mate naturally and then they are weaned usually around eight or nine months compared to six months a little bit later we have an approach of natural mothering is one of the key aspects of our company which has to do with really mitigating stress so we do the weaning naturally and then we don't wean them by moving them to a totally different place we actually wean them by just separating them with a fence so they can still maintain emotional contact with the moms but in confinement they're just taken on a truck and they go to what's called a stocking operation and then from there they go to a feedlot and the feedlot's finishing and the goal of the feedlot is to create just maximal optimal weight gain and you know it's interesting i think about feedlots as like it's like you were a perennial like fourth grade recess you know in terms of competition animals these are animals going through puberty it's a situation where there's competition for you know interaction mates food all that stuff so it's a highly um, stressful social context there are usually 20 or 30 animals in a cement line pen and then they're fed a mix of corn other diet elements which is a highly maladaptive diet you know people think that e coli is like just what's in a cow's tummy and it's actually makes cows sick and have diarrhea in the same way it does to humans hmm. and it's it's when they're eating a very bad diet if you look at pictures on you can see this online is the rumen of an animal so the stomach of a corn-fed animal is actually black and shiny on the inside our animals it's you know it's green and pink you know sort of a normal intestinal color wow. that an, that diet for the corn-fed confinement animals is makes them extremely um, sick wow and you know <laughs> i've had that argument of like but the animals gain so much weight um they're not you know they the weight which they're gaining weight would suggest that they're happy and healthy and i think 
Well, think about if you could see in your own life in the time when you've put on like three times the normal weight in the space of six months. Was that your happiest and healthiest moment? Definitely not. (laughs) Right? So (laughs) it's absolutely, it's a high stress, poor diet confinement operation, which gets them up to, it puts them through puberty really quickly, which is also kind of an amazing thing to me. It's like sexual, you know, the, the onset of puberty in animals, just like humans, it causes the, their whole bodies change and they're able to put on weight much more quickly. Same as for us, you go through puberty and your whole relation to, to, to your caloric input changes radically, right? So that you compress that in animals by putting them on this intense diet, they go through puberty much younger. Same as with humans when you have a high calorie dense diet. And that's happening. Precocious puberty is like epidemic. And it's a refined, so they're actually fed a refined carbohydrate diet. They go through puberty faster. God. They hit their milestone, their weight milestones faster, and they can be slaughtered at 16 months. So what it takes us 28 months to do on a natural diet, it's kind of like if you were to like sit in a cubicle and just eat Fritos and not move compared to if you're walking around, you know, eating seasonal greens, think about how long it would take you to mature and put away. That's like the analogous kind of human confinement versus free range. It's insane. So there's ethical concerns for me, you know, to the degree that some people are more empathetic with animals than others. I tend to be really empathetic with that and think, gosh, that would be awful to be in that situation. But you, So you can look at it that way. But another way to look at it is like, you know, you are what, what you eat to some degree and what's being put into that confinement animal's rumen isn't just bad for them in terms of giving them E. coli, which is a higher risk factor for you as a consumer. So yeah. higher risk for pathogens. The other piece is that um, their fat ratio changes dramatically. Our beef, we've tested third party. It's 1 to 1.2 of omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. That's perfect. Right. And that's what you, the, the ideal diet is 1 to 1. Okay. And the American available calories is 1 to 30. So we have a highly skewed, like what you encounter in a day, day in America is 1 to 30 ratio. 1 to 30 ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s. Mm-hmm. And the 6s are the seed oils, right? Yeah. So then if you go into the feedlot, what they're fed is a highly seed intensive diet corn things like that and that is so they the ratio of the fats in the corn fed animals is 1 to 20 to 1 to 40 depending on the intensity of the diet and that ratio changes immediately when you change the diet so i've seen claims of well it's grass fed except for the final let's say 6 weeks 8 weeks whatever within 3 or 4 days the fat ratio changes hmm. And within two weeks, it'll go, you can have all grass feeding up until the end. It'll change really dramatically. So the fat composition, so from a human health perspective, no matter if you empathize with the animals, it's actually demonstrated worse for your health to eat this as well. Of course. So, yeah, I mean, so it doesn't matter at all if the animal was grass-fed, grain-finished. It still basically has that skewed omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. What you want to look for in your meat is 100% grass-fed or grass-fed, grass-finished. Absolutely. Which are synonymous, I guess. Mm-hmm. Huh. Exactly. Did you have to, I mean, when you, you said that you were vegetarian, right? How long were you vegetarian for? Uh, nine years. Wow. My adolescence. Did yeah. you, I mean, what, like, and now you run a farm, you're like, you're, you're butchering meat. Like, did you have to personally get over like an, like an ethical hump in order to be able to do this? Because like, I love meat i'm always going to be an omnivore but i also like love animals and people i you know there's an argument that if you love to eat meat you should be able to hunt your own meat and Mm -hmm. and kill your own animal i don't think i'd ever be able to do that um you know i still am uncomfortable watching animals get slaughtered it's never become comfortable for me and i run a slaughterhouse for my job you know i'm i for a while i was not comfortable saying that but i actually feel it's like it's true it's totally honest it's like it's the most painful part of what i do the you know the piece that i feel good about it is that the actual quality of life and the health of the animal is much much better throughout right but i agree i mean it's an uncomfortable reality right but um you know and and i kind of downplay it in our company we put a lot of time into like humane handling and the actual process of butchering and I agree. It's like, you know, it's still, it's still, um, an animal's life. Right. Um, so that's challenging. So I'd say though, as a former vegetarian, what, what changed my world was moving to a a country where it was just radically different period. And just seeing free range animals and seeing animals eating grass and natural diets and saying, Oh, okay. This is, I feel fine about this. Yeah. You know, these are great lives and these are lives well lived. It was in also realizing I was completely convinced that I never even 
cracked a book about it, but somebody told me it was 12 pounds of grain for one pound of That's insane. beef. And I was like, oh my God, and look at Ethiopia and look at, I mean, like, look at the world and hunger. Like, I, this is irresponsible. You know, it's just like, I just took that statistic and, and, and just never processed it or thought about it. And, and the other bigger issue in this is like, you know, the only, we're feeding, you know, human, you know, corn could be fed to humans. It's true. It's a terrible malad, I mean, it's a bad for the environment system. And all that data out there about, you know, that many kind of um, meat substitute companies putting out there is true about how bad meat is. That's not the kind of meat that we're raising, though. Right. It's like saying I can get from here to the bank on a Hummer. I can get from here to the bank on a bicycle. But I'm going to say that the impact's the same of the bicycle. I'm going to say this is what it costs to get right. to the bank. Right. It's like a completely conflating two radically different ways. Right. You could say going to the bank is bad for the environment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Because if you go there shooting guns while riding a Hummer. I mean, it's like it's crazy, right, that we're saying this is all one thing. And right. it's so different. You know, actually, General Mills funded a study recently of white oak pastures, which is similar to Belkin. It's a really regenerative farm that does leading edge. A gentleman's been at it for longer than I have, 30 plus years, an incredible leader in the regenerative ag movement in the Southeast. And they documented three years of research that it's carbon positive. It's exactly the style of farm. We've been part of a similar study in in our farm uh, in Northern California over the past five years with a group out of Point Reyes that's shown that we are carbon positive because we're we're not tilling the earth. We raise perennial grasses. They have root systems that are 30 plus feet deep. And they take carbon from the environment, they sequester it. And the animals are not dense. You know, like, so these things about, like, the lagoons of the manure and the antibiotics in the water, that's all true. It's just not true about us. (laughs) Right? So it just, it's hard for me to look at that information and say, yeah, I totally agree you shouldn't eat that meat. So when you hear claims that, like, all meat is bad for the environment, you know, it's 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 a claim that is thrown around. Like, you know, it's one of the top claims waged against against being an omnivore you're it's not necessarily true that's something i I am also aware that i fell for that for a long time Mm. you know i never i never lifted it up and looked at it Mm -hmm. really i mean it's like a it's already a sticky issue it's an issue that people feel complicated about you know it's the classic thing of like the kids like wait that cute pig had to die to make bacon i'm never eating bacon again it's it's something you automatically have doubts about if you're ethical and concerned about stuff and paying attention so, but it, it kills me that meat as in, as a category is seen as bad for the environment yeah. when there's a way to do it. And there's also, you know, every year in California, we have these massive fires, right? The, the, the amazing guy, James, who you met when you were up at the farm, he's a fifth generation California rancher, James Rickert, incredible mm. gentleman, runs our operation, super knowledgeable. He'll tell you stories about how the process of clearing brush through livestock was part of what farmers did for forests. So as, you know, as we have populated this country and gotten rid of the natural ruminants, right, the wildlife, you increasingly have underbrush, right, because you don't have animals eating it. Hmm. So livestock and ruminants in the forests are also something we should be looking at California in California more proactively just in general because of wildfire risk. Goats in forests would solve a lot. Of, I mean, sort of putting this out there, it's a little bit on the edge. But Let's get it, some goats in those forests. It's what you need. We need some more goats in the forest. If <laughs> people would just eat the goats. But, you know, there's a there's a real opportunity. Ruminants as part of ecosystems, that's time has shown that. I mean, got the 1930s, the, the, the whole dust bowl that was created by eliminating the bison population. Hmm. Right? That's how... How the West was won, right? We got rid of all the bison. Then we had the Dust Bowl as a result, effectively, right? Wow. Got rid of the ruminants. Got rid of America's prairies. You look at places like Australia and Argentina. There still are vast natural prairies. Hmm. We decimated that by removing the ruminants. We didn't mow the prairies. We got rid of the ruminants that were part of fertilizing it and aerating it. You right. know, you have these giant 2,000-pound animals walking over it. Their deep hooves are digging holes. That's aeration. They're eating and pooping and creating habitats for beneficial insects and nematodes and things. That's the, that's an ecosystem. That's a positive relationship that's evolved over millennia. It's amazing. We break that cycle. Things fall apart. That's what's happening in part in the state on a couple different levels. We've taken agriculture and said, you're bad. Well, part of you is bad, but we've really wholeheartedly gotten rid of uh, part of our ecosystem in a way that's bad for the bigger picture. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, but these like fake meat products, I mean, they're so infuriating because first of all, they're just, they're not healthy. I mean, it's like pea protein and canola oil and just all this garbage wrapped in plastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, that the, the suggestion that those are somehow better for the environment, let alone health, which they're absolutely not better for your health. 
um, is just preposterous. I agree. It's hard to see, to imagine that being the future, right? Um, it's hard to imagine that that's going to, that that's going to be a viable winning solution, but there's a lot of vested interest in that being the solution. I know. You know, big ag is struggling right now. I mean, you've seen there's all sorts of, you know, people are, are the, the, the challenge I would think of in a company like, let's say a Tyson is that, you know, they're continually making claims, no prophylactic antibiotics. Well, not really, because when you have veterinarians on the dole who are willing to tell you that your chickens are always sick, yeah. you have no problem getting all the antibiotics you want. I mean, there's documentation that those claims are false or they're, they're written in a way that they can be broken, mm. right? So if you're in their shoes, you actually can't produce meat in the right way and, and still meet those cost metrics that you set up. I mean, we have gotten addicted to cheap meat. If people advocate meat that's not inhumane, that's not terrible for the environment, terrible for people's health that live nearby those CAFOs and those farms, how we get, it's like something's got to give. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, it's almost like the lesser of two evils, right, for them. So the, it's a challenging situation. We set ourselves up to a, get to a breaking point um, around the way that meat is farmed. Yeah, you feel, I, I feel like, I don't know if you mentioned, but like uh, in the factory farm system, these animals are also felt, f- fed low doses of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. What is an antibiotic, I mean, what is an antibiotic, what, what do low doses of antibiotics do to cattle? So cattle is the least sensitive to antibiotics, huh. but pigs and chickens are really sensitive to antibiotics. The studies that I've seen, it's like 1.5 to 1.9% baseline rate weight gain improvements wow. just through antibiotics. So it's funny, you know, if you see a claim on pork or poultry products that say no hormones mm-hmm. it's actually there's no hormones allowed by the usda in either of those categories it's wow. not because the usda is super virtuous right it's because the hormones don't work as well as antibiotics do wow so you don't need them in beef hormones there's hormones of plenty because the antibiotics they're not as sensitive to the antibiotics got it so the beef they're pumping them full of hormones yeah, and then the chicken and, po- and pigs they're uh, feeding antibiotics. Yeah, and actually wow. now they, in beef, they're actually using more probiotics in the feed because the gut health is so bad that weight gain slows. Oof. So it's pretty, it's a pretty rough situation. But they use antibiotics there as well. They're just not as radically powerful. In pork and, and chicken, I don't know. It might be the shorter life cycle. It's probably it, you know, because the beef still it's 16 months, 18 months. Mm. Chickens, you can get them from chick to to you know to plastic wrap in uh, three weeks. Wow. Right with anime, that's pretty incredible that's to insane. get a two and a half pound chicken in three weeks, right? Wow. And there's there's diseases now. There's things like it's called woody breast in chicken. That's a major defect because these animals grow so quickly that these muscle fibers almost become like petrified in the animal. Oof. So our chickens, the baseline is uh, eight or nine weeks for the same breed of chicken that Tyson uses, just natural diet and exercise. Wow. It's like an endo antibiotics. So we're just like creating a clean, safe, healthy outdoor environment, it takes us minimum four times as long. I mean, your chickens look different. I mean, like, I, you know, the last time I was in a regular supermarket, I mean, these chickens look like they're like mutants. They're huge. Yeah. And they're also very pale. Like the, the, the how white the flesh is. Same with the pork. It's very, very white. You what know, when animals move, they, their, their muscles pump, um, pump blood and you know the muscles get oxygenated and there's hemoglobin deposits in the muscles so you get a deeper red color even our beefs a redder color hmm. you know you're if you see in the butcher shop it's a deeper redder color you don't want to go to like purplish that usually is a sign of like it's old or has oxidized but you want a really deep ruby red in beef hmm. and with pork and um, it should be like a peachy pink um, and it can even look as dark as as beef and and that's actually a great sign that the animal is getting a lot of exercise and moving around Wow. The chickens, too. Our chickens are deep red. We actually get complaints in our restaurant because the meat will be pink when it's cooked. And it's like, no, it's fully cooked. But it's just naturally a dark red color because of the movement. Hmm. People are just not used to seeing animals that have moved. Now, you know, many farms are free range and their animals will still be pale. So this is like as consumers, you know, looking at meat, use your eyes and your intuition. If an animal says it's free range and it's very, very white and puffy, that's probably not free range. You know, free range animals can legally be called that and just be in a huge, you know, 40 foot long hoop house with a door that's 12 inches wide. Hmm. So they have a hypothetical access to a run, like a foot wide long thing that runs the length of this where they could hypothetically go outside. Wow. But they're de-beaked. Oof. Free range animals are typically de-beaked because they're under so much stress that they're pecking at each other. Oh, God. Right? So again, social stress, competition for mates, resources, foods. You know, it's a yeah. highly stressful environment. So to, to minimize the damage to the meat, they'll de-beak them. 
Um, so that, I mean, you think about a de-beaked animal that's pecking at its neighbors. It's not going to go find that door and go work out outside. Like it's, so use your eyes as a consumer, you know, pay attention. If it's white and puffy, it's probably not really free range. It's horrible. So yeah, the, the situation in the, I don't think people realize how, how bad the majority, I mean, you should just look to at pricing. Anytime you see a animal you know kind of a lot of claims and the meats at the same price or close to the price of conventional because the, the real dirty secret with all this is that it costs a heck of a lot more to make things the way that we do it it's <laughs> just like expensive food takes a lot longer you know you need more people you need people who are more skilled you're not like dumping a bag into a bucket for these guys right, right. you're actually going and paying attention different seasons the animals go to different parts of the pasture it's actually like a deeply skilled knowledge base right it's not something you can just kind of plug in and just replace a guy so it's about talent people resources it costs a heck of a lot more to do it this way oh man one of the things that i wrote about in uh my book genius foods was you know in endorsing the consumption of high quality grass-fed uh meat i have a rule actually in the back of the book i say you know always buy meat um that comes from animals that have had only one bad day it's like my one nice. bad day rule yeah, yeah i remember that from it's the book. literally mm-hmm. it written into my book and that's one of the things that i love about what you guys do it's so clear that the animals you know live out these amazing lives and you know every day for an animal in the factory farm system it's like auschwitz every day it's like just like yeah. it's like you know concrete floors you mentioned um and so yeah i really applaud what you guys do i want to ask you about um because during meat camp you brought up this really interesting fact about how we're told to cook meat um because you know most of us don't eat it raw although i got to eat it raw for the first time you're a meat you're a raw meat enthusiast now Now, because of you (laughs) i wouldn't say i wouldn't go that far i wouldn't say enthusiast but it's good it's good i like it i like tart i've been having tartare what else you've had the tartare you've had the carpaccio yeah and then you had my farm tartare too which is that lemony fresh one from the animal that we butchered cruda yeah the cruda carne cruda carne cruda yeah that's the simplest well you know for for raw meat i always look for like the most simple essential preparation you know like don't want a lot of onions and stuff on it because it's like I want to be able to taste if it's very very fresh because in that case you want to be able to have it fresh, but um, but I I I, pr- I love raw meat I love the way it makes me feel I feel like it's a very like vital like I don't know it just kind of makes me feel energetic, um, and I I also just love just super proud that I can make it and feel really good about it. You know, it's a hell of a lot of work to do what we've done and build this whole, and so sometimes it's like one of those moments, you don't take a lot of moments to like sit back and say, but I can have a big, I can give my, you know, three-year-old a plate of my raw meat and be like, go to it. Hmm. And he's so happy. You know, it's like, it's, it's amazing to have something that I feel that good about, you know, that I know that deeply is safe is really powerful emotion for me. That makes me, you know, f- feel awesome about it. And so, you know, the, the, the raw meat, the fear about raw meat, it is um, it, it, we've been told that raw meat is in, inherently dangerous, in particular raw poultry, and it's not. I mean, it's actually totally clean in the same way that raw vegetables can also be dangerous when they are contaminated. Mm. Right? It's like it's a substrate. The, the raw stuff is like the purest, cleanest substrate possible. Right? Um, what I put it this way broadly is that in the U.S. Um, we have made, we have a culture, have endorsed a system, whether, you know, some people it's explicit, most people it's implicit, that we're okay with unclean product. And we are, as consumers, we're, as end users, solving for supply chain issues through uh, over prep, I mean, overcooking. You hmm. know, it's basically we've been coached to use our ovens effectively as like a home sanitation device for dirty meat. Wow. There's a, there's a study that just, there's a lawsuit. You, you probably know, you're always up on these things, but a big like physicians group, more than half the chicken in the U.S. is contaminated with fecal matter. And there's a lawsuit against the USDA from a physicians group currently oh, wow. about endangering human health. Huh. And, and it's not that chicken is covered in shit naturally. It's that chickens have you know, their body cavities right there next to them. And, and when they're eviscerated, not to get too granular here, but it's all right there. It's a tiny animal and the gut's right there. They're slaughtered and there's just more potential for contamination. In beef, they have a hide on them and there's their whole evisceration, the entirety of the intestines can be removed as a unit with very low likelihood that anything's going to burst, right? Mm. So unless it's actually in contact with manure from the outside, it's a much lower risk of contamination. With beef, wow. With beef, just bigger animals are easier to keep clean. Smaller animals, just think about the actual way the chicken's built, you know, the whole 
audience yeah. right there. So there's just a greater contamination potential just by the, the law of probability. Hmm. More access points and smaller animals. So we've been taught again and again, cook beef to like 145. Well, there's a way to just take the pleasure out of eating. <laughs> just like, please, guys, we're not super sure about how clean this is. So please cook the hell out of it. That's what we're being told, right? right. And we're like, awesome, great. Let's um, let's let's drown this in, bar- in like sugary barbecue sauce to cover up the, the fact that food. it's like overcooked and under. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we're all like, great, raising our hands, like getting our trays and lining up. Like It's crazy to me that we just said, this is awesome. We're just signing up for like sucky overcooked food for forever. <laughs> we're not asking for it to be clean so we can cook it to the point of maximum deliciousness or eat it raw if we want to. We should be able to eat raw chicken if we want to. You know, it's not unclean. It just needs to be handled in a way that guarantees its safety. The other crazy thing is that, you know, chicken is all 99% of it's dipped in bleach effectively, dipped in a, in a chlorine solution. Oh, God. The whole body right after its process is dipped in chlorine. Have you ever had the experience of cooking chicken and have like a whitish liquid come out of it? Yeah. There you go. Oh, so that's a that's a big no no. That's you, bleach. That's a it's a bleach. It's a chlorine solution. So there's a I mean and and beef are also sprayed with a lactate solution, but with chicken because of the body cavity issue, you know it's tiny. There's a lot of feathers right around its whole where it's all the poops coming out. So there's just more uh, possibilities of contaminating. The skin is very thin. Think about beef skin and the protection of the meat. Right? It's just yeah. higher probability. So again, we're not like hey, how about we slow down? How about we you know um, also. The animals, if they're under stress, when they're being taken to the slaughterhouse, they're more likely to be covered in fecal matter when they get there. Mm. So you have chickens being trucked many hours, right? You have chickens packed into cages, getting their poop on each other. Like, that's all risk factors right there. So instead of saying, like, let's put fewer animals in cages, let's make the plants right next to the, like, ours is adjacent to our farm, you know, 20 minutes away. Let's make, let's just solve for that. We're saying, great, just keep pushing them through. Dip them in bleach and make sure everybody overcooks them. <laughs> everybody got that? Like that's the plan, and nobody's like calling. And then then we're then we're saying, okay, that's not working. So let's like switch to uh, hyper processed, genetically modified fake meat. Oh my god! You know, like this is where I'm I'm confused. Where I say, can I can I get off this train? Right. And like and just walk. Like this does nothing is making sense to me. You know. So backwards. So I I encourage. I also think just like from a health perspective, for me, like the sensual joy of cooking, making food smell really good, just making the whole act of making food, sharing food, people I love cooking for, like I just love that stuff. And I love that. I feel like that's the fundamental part of health. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot I think about connecting in the wellness community, which is really valid, like connect with nature. But another way to connect with nature is to cook it, you know, and like to cook outside and take your time and smell stuff and touch stuff and it's it's so sad to me that that we have decided like oh just don't eat the cookie dough. Why? Because eggs might have salmonella. <laughs> well, eggs only get salmonella if they're contaminated. It's <laughs> not like raw eggs are bad for you right. or make you sick. You know, so we have generations of kids who aren't like dipping their fingers into the batter. <laughs> you know, and like what's that mean for their ability to taste and use their palates and be empowered consumers and their own like sensual delight in life? Like that sucks. And that to me is the cornerstone of health is like enjoyment and pleasure and responsible, like just finding joy in those, in that act of cooking and sharing food. So I feel like we've taken all this stuff and kind of made it like a little like pseudoscience, a little scary of like people with different cutting, at meat camp, the number of people I have who come to camp and work with our team who've never touched meat with their hands, hmm. like raw, you know, who have different cutting boards for every type of protein, you know, it, it, this is just to me, we've, we're back-ending solutions to a broken system, hmm. not not raising our hands as consumers and saying, hey, we deserve a better system. Like, we shouldn't have to settle for not eating the batter, for not touching our food, for not feeling empowered to cook it to the point where we think it's delicious as opposed to overcooking it to the point where we're sure we've killed all the pathogens. Oh, God. Right? That's what we're signing up for. And yeah. I don't think we're aware as a culture of how much we're giving away. You know, and that, that to me is like the real fire for me is like, man, I want to give people back the power to, to, to have meat that they can feel good about, to cook spontaneously, to taste as they're cooking, to give the kids the damn cookie dough to eat all they want. You know, like that's what I think these are, these are fundamental pleasures and we shouldn't, we kind of like outsourced all of our safety and health to agribusiness for a couple of decades all got really sick and we're like, okay, new plan, right? And, it, and we're not really looking at the fundamentals right now. 
Yeah. I mean, we do that with our health too, to our physicians. We like outsource our health to our physicians, which nothing against physicians, but it's like, you know, one thing that I always repeat ad nauseum is that wellness and healthcare happens when you're pushing your shopping cart around the perimeter of the supermarket Absolutely. and you're avoiding the aisles, which is where all the hyper processed foods lie in wait, tempting you, you know, yeah. or when you're deciding for yourself whether or not you want to go to the gym and it's been a long day, but you know that going to the gym is going to be the perfect way to not only improve your sleep later that night, but to boost mental health, you know, and we're seeing now epidemic rates of anxiety, depression, things like that. Yeah. It's crazy. What are, so back onto meat camp with you, having the raw meat, how was that for you? Like, I mean, not yeah. like emotionally, was that stressful to like, do you, are you, a, do you, like, do you feel that cultural education around meat? Yeah, no, I was, I was afraid, but I, uh, you know, I mean, growing up, I, uh, you know, we always like washed our chicken and, um, you always had to, I mean, I'd never eaten raw meat before meat camp and you gave me that slice of the lamb and I thought it was delicious. I mean, it tasted no different than a good piece of sashimi, which I love. Yeah. Um, so what then, like if you, if people want to try raw meat, I mean, they can't just go to their supermarkets and buy like, that would not be advisable, right? To no. go. Yeah. No. The, I feel like the contamination risk is pretty high for like supermarket meat. Yeah. I'd be very cautious. I mean, there's plenty of small butcher shops that are buying from good quality farms. You know, mm. we're pretty unique in that. You don't really need to ask any questions. That's my goal. Is like the whole thing is pretty solid. But yeah. th that's a, there's a lots of other options out there. If you go, I mean, there's some great other small farms in California that you can buy from directly. Um, and those would all be places that you'd, you know, could buy something and grind it or go to. A, it's interesting that every time a piece of meat is cut is when you have a great contamination risk. Hmm. And then you know, as you get into things like what happened to Chipotle, where it's not even about you know, the poop of the animal making it into the raw, which is, that's the big problem is fecal matter. I mean, yeah. E. coli, salmonella, it's all fecal matter. It's poop on your food. But then like, a, the, but E. coli really only kind of festers in those factory farm systems yeah, anyway, yeah, right? You have much higher incidence there. Um, but then the other issue is when you get into the food service environment, then there's things like norovirus, which is people sneezing, you know? So every time you're cutting food, <clears throat> you have these greater contamination risks, which is why, Things like awful and um, which is and raw meat. These are things that are higher contamination risk for a bunch of different reasons mm. that have kind of just dropped off the menu. And mm. we just said it as a culture. Okay, we just don't eat eat, eat that anymore because it doesn't really fit into the paradigm for how food is handled. Yeah. Um, and it's sad. I just think that those are things that I mean, it's not going to change the world to eat raw meat or not. And you know, these are these are. But I do think if you're talking about having a pleasurable eating experience that makes you want to embrace health. Um, having great quality ingredients that are prepared to the point of maximum deliciousness, that's that's part of optimum health. Hmm. You know, so having a being able to have a burger that's medium rare and really appetizing and smells delicious, that's like part of optimal health. That's when you're going to choose that over, you know, whatever hyper-processed option is out there. Yeah. So it's like, how do you make protein into a tempting alternative? You know, I, I go, if I'm like you, I travel a lot and I, you know, you walk through the airport and you see all those like, salads with that piece of chicken it's like the same piece of chicken yeah. and you think like damn an animal like lived in torture died in pain and it tastes like shit oh. you know it's like wow that's a tasteless piece of chicken right and there's no to me i think man if i was like in a situation where i was trying to start on a health journey and i was walking through that airport and i see that like tasteless piece of chicken on the weird salad with the trans fat dressing and then there's like the <laughs> hot pizza it's like, yeah, I'll have the pizza or I'll have the whatever weird burrito thing. Like, it's just not an appealing option. And it's also sad that those animals are raised in confinement in a bad situation. You know, so that simple protein-based option that we all know we should be eating more of, unfortunately, if the primary ingredients aren't optimal, it's not the most appealing path. Yeah. It's kind of the disconnect I see it because I see a lot of people in the media. You do it really well of having, like, things at different price points, too. But a lot of this, it's like, look at this super beautiful, like, chicken breast and an avocado. And I think, yeah, it looks great on Instagram. But if you were buying that at a Walmart in Des Moines, it's not going to be very yummy. And you're probably not going to have that more than once. Hmm. You know, the reality is simple food that's really healthy, you got to start with really good stuff to make it appealing. Totally. You know, it's like, it's got to be a skin on breast from a chicken like Bill Campbell, I'll eat that all day long, right? That's delicious. And even chicken breast is pretty bland, but it can be pretty damn good when you have really good quality meat. But you're not going to opt for that simple, essential thing 
if if it's not optimal, that's how we got into this mess of all the sugar and the fat and the stabilizers and stuff is that when the primary ingredients aren't very good, you know, if you take kind of crummy pork and make it into crummy salami, then you start adding a lot of sugar and stabilizers and things to it to make it kind of prop it up, to cover yeah. up what's lacking. You had that experience, you know, you cook a basic you go to some restaurant and you have like this basic, amazing, like, wow, how they make that broccoli so good? You know what? I'm just going to cook more just straight up good broccoli. And then you do it at home and it's like you don't have the right broccoli. You don't have the amazing olive oil. You're like, well, that was a bummer, right? <laughs> We've all that experience. Like unless you're doing – if you're going for that simple – the kind of food that you advocate – it really is predicated on super good ingredients. Well, because I think there's this misconception that simple foods are going to equate to simple flavors or that like few ingredients is somehow going to be a boring meal. Mm-hmm. But actually, in one, of the thing, one of the things that I love about you and your cooking and what you, you know, the recipes that are in your cookbook, for example, and everything that I had at Meat Camp is like you're using very few ingredients. And it's a great way to save money for your average person too, mm-hmm. right? Focus on high quality meats and just a handful of ingredients. Like what would you say are essentials to have you know, in any kitchen that can be used to whip up like a delicious meal. I would say get really good olive oil. Best. Just, yeah, like, I mean, like drop, you know, $17, $18 on a bottle of olive oil, but it can last you for six months. You know, you just use it as a finishing oil. Yeah. Um, get, extra virgin only, right? Yeah, extra virgin. And also be cautious. Get something that's actually from a farm, like that has the name of a farm on it. And if you can see the year, it's even better. Um, that's a great, and that's a great thing to get at a farmer's market. If you live in a place where they grow olive oil, that they grow olives, that's terrific. That's a great, like basic piece to go. The other thing that's amazing, I mean, it's all about the fats, but really good, clean, um, grass fed and finished butter is amazing. Mm. Like that's something where if you're finishing with it, cooking with it, it makes a really big difference. Oh my God. We had these steaks and you made this butter. You blended it with anchovies. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. all that it, that was? Yeah. Anchovies. We use green garlic from the garden too. Oh my God. You guys like if you're into... You were hilarious. You had like a steak with like a pad of butter. I was using it. butter was as like, a sauce. I'm, <laughs> I'm on Team Max with that dinner. That was pretty good. Yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> Probably 6,000 calories worth of butter that night, but it was so good. But you didn't feel like meat hangover, right? Oh no. I felt amazing. I didn't get that. Like we, there were these those other people on the farm uh, with us and you know they were talking about like meat sweats. I actually, I don't really have that very frequently. Yeah. When you eat clean meat, you don't get that as much. I've had the meat. It it happens with, particularly with a lot of pork, I find. Interesting. It's just something your body kind of gets overheated with it. But that's, that's when I've had to do, you know, for product development and stuff like that, we end up eating a lot of meat. Um, But that I've definitely, the thing I've heard from a lot of people who've joined our team from conventional meat, particularly, you know, guys in their like 30s and 40s start to be like oh i love meat but it's you know my doctor tells me i gotta watch out and then that's when they get on to like the grass-fed team Mm. and what they'll say to me is like i used to always like have almost a hangover from after eating a big steak where you just feel like kind of groggy the next day yeah and that with our meat they don't feel that like they don't get that kind of hangover and i think it has to do with probably just that gut bomb of all those omega-6s and yeah who knows what else but like that's i've heard that consistently from a lot of different people, like it's no meat hangover. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Belcampo. I, 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 even before knowing about Belcampo, I mean, I eat exclusively, pretty much at this point, grass-fed beef, and I, I never have that feeling. Like, mm-hmm. I, it always makes me feel good. But then, yeah, polyunsaturated fatty acids, like grain and seed oils, like they, those wreck my stomach. Is that what it is then? Okay, so it might be the the uh, yeah. sixes. It, I mean, it could be. It could be. I just know that those oils, you know, ruin my digestion and. Um, and just in terms of meat, yeah, meat, I never feel heavy, you know, and I can eat a lot of, like, a lot of beef, a lot of grass-fed beef. I've personally observed. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can eat test. a lot. It's not like <laughs> telling you guys a lie, yeah. Um, so, okay, so we've got the extra virgin olive oil, we've got the butter. And now, I love anchovies. We were we got into the butter discussion around that. Yeah. I like using anchovies with my meat cooking. It's a it's a real umami boost, um, and it's kind of a way to have a simple ingredient that packs a lot of different flavors in it. Mm. Um, so that I I love to use that um, in compound butters. I also make a very simple sauce with like uh, flat leaf parsley, chopped anchovies, maybe some lemon rind, some olive oil that I pair with meats. I love combining like bitter herbs and, and um, flavorful greens with meats. Mm. It, I think it, there's a lot of things in traditional cultures like digestion wise that really um, work. And that's, there's a, you know, in Italy and Argentina, uh, South America and Southern Europe, you pair uh, meats with green herbs. Wow. So I love to com- to pair that. I just feel it's the same thing with like pickles and charcuterie, mm. traditional pairing, but all that fermented food when you're eating the pork fat is actually quite, you know, makes it easier on your system. Um, same thing goes with broth. You know, we we have a big business in bone broth, and we're well known for the our bone broth tastes amazing. It's a it's a great product, and that's something that really came. 
because I, in Italy, at the end of meals, you get a cup of broth often. So it's a traditional way in, in Asia, too. They do like a cup of broth after you had your last glass of wine, you have a glass of broth. Wow. Helps you with digestion, helps you with sleeping. But, um, so those kind of traditional pairings. So anchovies, back to that, like that's in the green herbs, like with meats, that's a great pairing. But I'd say, you know, the the fats are where to start is, you know, your good olive oil, your good butter, and some good salt. Salt's funny because I've I've read and done the tastings too where it's like if it's dissolved in, in um, water, it doesn't, you know, there's really no difference in taste. So with salt, the piece that I found most important is just getting away from table salt. Because table salt is um, very heavy and dense for the amount of saline. So you can tend to oversalt with it. Mm. And it just texturally is not very interesting. Mm. So kosher would be the base level. And then a flaky salt or a pink salt is another or just a good quality sea salt as a finishing salt. If you're talking about how to bump up um, really, you know, basic ingredients. Yeah. That's the way. The thing I'd, I'd encourage you to think about as a cook in terms of simple cooking, making it more elegant, easier, is just... Look for ways to slow it down. How many times have I been served like a grilled zucchini that's effectively raw? Grilled zucchini can be delicious. It's not like anybody's favorite dish usually. But it, to make it really delicious, it takes like 45 minutes on a really low and slow grill. You're so right. I freaking hate that. I, it's like, I don't want a piece of, of raw zucchini with char marks on it. No, thank right. you. You know? And I, it's life's too short, right? So I just think if you're going to make something simple, be prepared. And we talked about that grilling too, like the, the no futzing rule. Yeah. You know, just don't nudge stuff as much. Let it form a crust. You know, try to flip your burgers or your steaks just one time. Oh man, so I was going to ask you about that. Um, okay, you uh, you taught me a lot about how to make a perfect burger, mm-hmm. and so I feel like that's something like like very actionable that we can leave our audience with, oh, like great. how to make like how to make like the perfect burger mm-hmm. from like the pro herself. Okay. Um, my first off, don't mix anything into it. Um, my recommendation is you take the ground meat out of the package that it's in and form it directly into your patty, um, which will make make sure that it's not um, – it'll have like the right amount of crumbliness and not be gummy. You want to not knead the meat ever, which will cause it to be kind of like more like a sausage and like, like more like a patty mm. and have more tensile strength, more like integrity than you want. Yeah. Um, so no kneading of the meat, no putting salt into the meat. Um, so I, I actually – That's important though because salt kind of changes the proteins and it makes it more like a meatball, right? There you go with the science. Yeah, exactly. It makes it like a meatball, makes – I, I don't know the exact on it, but it, it has to do with the enzymes in the meat. So when the meat is ground, there's enzymes that help the meat kind of reform and heal that mm. come from the animal's body. And those will activate if you need it too much. So wow. you want to just have the one interaction is the grinding of it. Then I just take it out and just form it with the patty right there. I like um, two styles of burgers. You never want a baseball burger. You always want the burger to be you know, really flat. So make it a little thinner than you think. I like to use about a half pound for a burger. Um, and it's just, I think you get a better ratio of the medium rare, you know, just like the, the shape of it. If you make it much smaller than that, you don't really have the center being nice and tender. If I want to make a smaller burger, I will actually make it more like what I consider like an in and out style patty, like a really, really thin patty where it's almost performing like lunch meat, Hmm. you know, where I intend to make it all well done, make a tiny patty and then put two of them in a burger or one of them more like a sandwich. Hmm. Um, so key tips are take it out of the package and form it right there. Um, I wouldn't make it ever thicker than like your forefinger and your thumb pushed together. You know? should, should the package be, should the meat be at room temperature or can you just have taken it out of the you fridge? You can just take it out of the fridge. You know, with steak, any piece of meat that's thicker than an inch and a half, you want to be thinking about temp. Because all the, the, what you're trying to avoid is a cold center um, and or too great of a ratio. You've had the experience of like a steak that's like really nice and seared on the outside and the middle is like not rare, but it's actually raw. Hmm. And it's chewy and unpalatable, yeah. especially if it's got some fat, because beef fat at, at room temperature is not very palatable. Mm-hmm. It needs to be warm. So getting that, that whole piece of meat to room temperature is going to make the eating experience more pleasurable. Um, so, But with ground meat, um, you're definitely, you're not ever going to be making an inch and a half thick burger. So right, I wouldn't right. worry about it. Um, so try to go about half an inch to three quarters of an inch thick, more on the half an inch side. Um, I do no fat on a hot cast iron if I'm in my inside and the same with a hot grill at the farm. We did it out there over wood fire coal. No fat, no oil. No fat, no oil. When what you want to do is throw it onto that grill. Just put a dusting of salt on each side. When you salt it, go from a couple inches above the meat so you don't get hot spots of salt, of really great density of salt. Throw it on the grill and you just need to take a breath. Let it sit there. 
and let it release its own fat. And that will then coat the grill. You should never be needing to spray Pam or canola or, I mean, if you're making like a chicken burger or 100% lean, okay, you're going to need to do that. But if you have even just a 90-10 blend for fat and lean, I would... Um, I, w- I wouldn't ever worry about it. Just give it enough time to release, you know, in that top millimeter or so of meat, there's enough fat in there that will immediately begin to dissolve and leak out and, and liquefy in the heat. And that will separate the burger. So if you're struggling to flip your burger, it means you have not, you either put it on too cold or you haven't waited enough. The burger should actually lift off and separate. And that's going to be the first step to getting a really nice crust. Wow. Don't salt your burger too far in advance of cooking it. It'll just draw water to the surface, which will make it harder for the fat to release and make it harder for the meat to brown. And then I'll do a nice flip when it's brown on, you know, and separate it, et cetera, and turn it over. Um, I'm a big fan of resting the meats too, to some degree, you know, like at least four or five minutes. If you have a really thick patty, if you have a crowd that wants a little bit more well done meat, just turn the heat off and let it rest there with residual heat. Don't, you don't have to do that with the, with the heat on it too. Mm. You can just leave it in residual and it'll kind of function like an oven. But the key tips are just, if you ever read a recipe that's like, take a whole bunch of stuff and chop it up and then knead your meat, stop there. Just take a break. (laughs) Take all that awesome stuff and put it on top of the patty when it's done. Yeah, you always see in the supermarkets these like pre-mixed ground beef concoctions. There's like chunks of cheese in there. Like (laughs) it's so bad. Well, it's also to me that's like the ultimate in the American culture around it, which is like, listen, y'all, it doesn't taste great, so let's put a bunch of stuff in it. You know, like it's that's the thing too. Uh, But it always kills me when I see raw onions mixed into meat, and I'm like, how the heck is that gonna cook in the middle of that meat by overcooking the whole thing? You know, so So be be suspicious of that stuff. You know, just just try to keep it simple and put that on top. The key thing is, you know, it just to start with the better quality stuff. You know, we do a, a great job and there's a lot of, there's there's pretty much like somebody in every city now that's doing it. And there are a couple of companies online. We ship online all across the U.S. and there's a couple of good companies as well that do it. But look for somebody that is at least one certification. Kind of doesn't matter what, but somebody's getting certified is a good place to start because they're doing the paperwork, they're diligent, they're tracking their sourcing, they're being held accountable. So I, I'm a big fan of certifications of some sort, just as an indicator of quality. And consistency of the supply chain, because somebody who's buying in from a bunch of different places can't make certification claims, you know. Hmm. So certification's a good a good sign that they've got a solid supply chain and are consistent. Um, and somebody who says to you, "Hey, I'm certified organic, but I just don't do the paperwork," I always consider that like, "Hey, I pay my taxes, I just don't file." Like it's pretty suspect, you know. So if they say they're organic and they're not certified, that's you really need to know them well to to trust that. So look for a certification. Look for the words regenerative, sustainable. Um, those are really good signs of somebody who's looking at full cycle production. And then, you know, you brought it up, the grass fed and finished the one bad day. That's really key. And with pork and poultry, it's about free range and then slow growing. Slow growing is a word you see increasingly because that's the really big difference. I mean, they're all fed grain, you know, for pigs and chickens or mm-hmm. they, they, they thrive on grain naturally. So they're all fed. So you have less of the easy black and white difference that you in beef. It's like so clear out of the gate, right? With pork, with pigs and chicken, the diet's pretty similar, right? Yeah. So you're looking for, it's a little more subtle. In those cases, you want heritage breeds, slow growing and natural pasture or pasture raised. Those are great indicators as well. But it's unfortunately, it's not like you can just sort of say, Hey, uh, it's it just, trust in this it's not like you know kind of now with organic produce i think to some degree the, the industry is consolidated enough the claims are consolidated enough there's pretty mainstream players that are doing a pretty darn good job in beef we're, and pork and poultry we're not there yet in the u.s so mm-hmm. you got to really activate as a consumer to c- defend your rights and be able to eat the good stuff and be as healthy as as you can be man vote with your wallet you guys you hear that Oh, man, Anya, thank you so much for, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours. I mean, this is like. we got to go downstairs and eat some more meat. Let's eat some more meat. Um, I got just one last question for you. Before we get to that, how can listeners uh, connect with you, you know, if they have follow-up questions or if they want to try some Belcampo meat? Like, what's, uh, how can people find you? I think the best way to engage with us now is just really through Instagram. Um, our The head of our farm, James, is always on our account. So if you literally post a comment with a question, James Rickert will dive in and answer. It's a pretty small company, you know, so, and the head of our slaughterhouse is also on Instagram and we'll dive in with questions, et cetera. So I encourage you've got questions um, to DM us on our Belcampo, at Belcampo Miko. 
Um, and then I too am at Anya Fernald, and you can reach out to me directly as well. How do you spell your last name? F-E-R-N-A-L-D. Beautiful. And then the Bell Campus stores, you mentioned NorCal, SoCal in New York, and then we're available online. We also sell at all the Air Wands here in Southern California. And we have two delivery-only restaurants now, one in Northern California and one in Southern California that sell through Caviar and Grubhub and those services. It's amazing. Can you give, maybe you can give like my listeners like a discount code, like Genius for... I can do that. Whatever percent off. Done. I don't know. Done. We're going to negotiate this right now. Yeah. I mean, whatever whatever you can <laughs> offer. I, yeah, I, I, I like can, to put my guests on the spot. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let me so give me a wallet. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, we can definitely do an e-com discount of like 20%, no problem. Beautiful. And then for the grub hubs and caviars, I got I to gotta loop back on that, but let's talk. I'm That's fine. No, the email. Because most a lot of my listeners are not in, you know, they're like everywhere. Cool. Yeah. Then yeah. they can get some of the. I'd also be really happy to do a box or something with you of stuff that you like if you wanted to do a special deal. That'd no be dope. Easy. Okay. Maybe in the future. Okay. Um, all right, you guys. So genius, belcampomeats.com. What is it? What's the website? The, bel- the website is belcampo.com. Belcampo.com. And it's at Belcampo Meat Co's Instagram. Anya's going to set up that genius code for you babies. Done. Done. All right, last question. What does it mean to you, Anya, to live like a genius? What does geni- the, the oh. genius life mean to you? Oh, man. To pay attention. That's what it's all about. Not, not choose to check out. I like that. Simple. You know, just choose to engage and pay attention, be present to the stuff that's bugging you, that's not working, that's painful from a diet and health perspective, from an emotional perspective, to be in tune with that and dive into those challenges and figure out how to fix them. That's the that's the real challenge, you know, and that's the it's a lot harder than it sounds. It's badass. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. You're a genius. And uh, also thank you for carrying genius foods in your stores. Yes, of course. It's a beautiful thing. Can't wait for your next book. Synergy, yes. Um, All right, guys. Well, to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening to this. As always, I value your time and attention. Please take a moment to spread the word about what Anya is doing, Belcampo, the genius life. Take a screen grab, throw it up on your Instagram stories. I would really appreciate that. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.